So you may notice that just for this month's episode, I've dropped the flaming, crashing blimp imagery from the lead balloon logo. Well, when the subject of this month's episode is an honest-to-goodness aviation tragedy that cost 159 lives, seems like that cheeky little bit of aeronautical dark humor is in poor taste. On December 20th, 1995, American Airlines Flight 965 from Miami crashed into the side of a mountain just minutes before it was expected to touch down in Cali, Colombia. It would be months before investigators pieced together the unlikely series of seemingly innocuous mistakes that led to the crash. But for Jennifer R. Hudson, who had all of three weeks on the job as American's corporate communications rep, the tragedy touched off one of the most intense, emotional, and difficult experiences of her decades-long career. It was the middle of the night. The telephone rang, and I was told that something had happened with a plane. We weren't sure what, what it was and that I needed to pack a bag, bring my passport, and get to the office as soon as possible. As the Spanish-speaking spokesperson for the team, it fell to Jennifer to fly to Colombia in the dead of night and coordinate the company's PR response to the tragedy. It's an experience that reshaped her as a professional and lives with her to this day. I'm Dusty Weiss from PodCamp Media. This is Lead Balloon, a podcast about PR, marketing, and branding nightmares and the well-meaning communications professionals who lived them. Thanks for tuning in. We talk about public relations disasters on this show, and we use that term loosely because even when a PR faux pas costs a company millions of dollars, at least everyone gets to go home at the end of the day. But that's why I think Jennifer Hudson's story is so compelling, the lessons so important. Because there are people who work in corners of public relations where the stakes are actually life or death. And the way that they're trained on the job, the methods that they use, and the way that they cope with the pressure are all valuable lessons for the rest of us. I do this show on a monthly basis, so if these are the kind of stories you find valuable, I hope that you'll subscribe on your favorite app. And if you give me a five-star review, I'll even read it on the air. Like Vicarious L-E-R, who says, I love this podcast. If you're in communications, marketing, or PR role, you will relate so hard. We all have those stories, and Lead Balloon celebrates them. Thanks, Vicarious. That's not only exactly what we're going for here, but your review helps Apple Podcasts' algorithm display this show to even more communications professionals like you. Before I met Jennifer R. Hudson... I didn't really know anything about the crash of American Flight 965, but having researched it an awful lot to prep for this episode, it's one of the more harrowing, confounding air disasters that I have ever heard of, in large part because there's no critical malfunction, there's no major mistake that you can blame. It's infuriating, almost. Instead, the Boeing 757 went down because of an unlikely series of small mistakes and X-factors any one of which would have been completely harmless on its own. But in perfect sequence, under exactly all the wrong conditions, Flight 965 wound up about 10 miles off course on a moonless night, flying directly into the side of a mountain that the pilots didn't know was there until the last few seconds. 159 people perished in that crash on December 20th, 1995. Four people and one dog survived, and Jennifer Hudson, 
was about to have an experience that would shape her both professionally and personally. Even just hearing you define that, like I have a physical reaction to it. I'm feeling something in my gut, um, in my stomach, like queasiness, just hearing you read that. Jennifer Hudson, you are a former vice president of communications for British Airways, former PR manager at the Sabre Group, the aviation booking and technology company, and a former corporate communications rep for American Airlines. After having worked in the aviation sphere for more than a decade, you branched out as a comms consultant, which you've been doing in South Florida since about 2004. But of course, the story that we're going to be exploring here is from early in your career, from your time at American Airlines. So Jennifer Hudson, thanks for joining us on Lead Balloon. Hi, Dusty. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Jennifer, I think it's really interesting that you took sort of a non-traditional route into the strategic communications field, dating back to your time at American. How did you come to work at American Airlines? And how did you wind up transitioning into corporate communications there? That's a really interesting story. So I had graduated college and was trying to make the decision about whether or not I wanted to go to grad school or whether I should get a job. I was turning 21. I was going to migrate off my mother's insurance. And she was like, you got to do something. And so I looked for work. I spoke Spanish because my undergraduate degree had been in Spanish. I had, been, had lived in Spain. I was trying to decide also, should I just go and live in Spain and teach English for a few years? This was the early 90s, though, and jobs were plentiful. And so it was a, it was a good time to be looking for work. American was hiring only Spanish-speaking reservations agents. And I'll tell you, Dusty, I didn't even type fast enough to get the job. So I actually taught myself to type. <laughs> did the interview, did the type test, and made it through. And I started an American Spanish Reservations Department. What I didn't realize is how that would change the whole trajectory of my professional career. So I got into Spanish Reservations. Eventually, you know, got recognized by these amazing, amazing women leaders at American who put me on a management track. I ended up managing, supervising the department that I started in. But the entire time that I was in the reservations department, I kept my hand in communications because I had a, a minor in communications. Kept my hand in communications. I had produced videos on the Spanish reservations department. I was a part of reorganization teams, the communications teams for those. I wrote the newsletter. And so I'd always kept my hand in communications and had actually finally made the decision to leave American after three and a half, four years to go to grad school because I knew I wanted to study public relations and work in that field. And an opportunity opened up in American's Corpcom department and I got the job. <laughs> This was at a time when the field of public relations was dominated by people who had had prior media experience, you know, reporters, people who had worked in the field. Those were the people who dominated in the PR field at the time. But I was hired to not only serve as the Spanish-speaking spokesperson for American, and the Spanish helped, so I tell everybody, study another language. The Spanish helped. I was also going to manage PR for Sabre, the travel technology arm that we were about to spin off. And it ended up just being this wonderful, 
happenstance for my career that I managed to do all of this within the same company. Just a piece of good luck there, really, being able to uh, make the transition that you did. But we also have a term in the PR and marketing field, and it's baptism by fire. <laughs> and I imagine that making that transition when you did and moving over into that field kind of felt a little bit like that. I mean, what sort of training do they give you at a company like American Airlines to be a spokesperson for an aviation company? Are air disasters something that you're specifically trained to handle? You know, my training for incidents happened in reservations, actually. I was also a part of what we called the IRG group, the initial response group. And I volunteered to be a part of that group. This was at the time when airlines contacted families after an incident happened and the reservations agents the IRG group was responsible for that so we would contact the families when we cleared the manifest and whatever the situation was we knew what was happening we were responsible for reaching out to families so I had already had that type of training by the time I got into corporate communications I think I had probably worked two or three incidents with planes already, one of which was a fatal crash by an American Eagle plane. And I was a part of the initial response group when that happened. So I was going into corporate communications already with the knowledge of the airline industry, already with that kind of training to deal with incidents that happened at the airplane, deaths on board. I mean, all of that sort of thing impacted reservations in some way. But outside of that, there was no boot camp where they sent you to no. learn how to deal with the media scrum or, or something like that. It was, no, it was, there wasn't. And, you know, I had taken communications courses in school, but yeah, the training that I got at American in Corpcom was really just the seasoned professionals at American Airlines were the ones who taught me everything that I know. And working with them, how to deal with the media, what to say, what not to say. And companies like American Airlines always have crisis communications plans. And crisis communications plans become the Bible when you are involved in any sort of incident. And so, you know, I, I, I honestly, if I did receive some type of structured training, my memory is a little blurry about it, but I know that the crisis communications plan was something that I knew I had the plan with me always. We would do what we called, we had to uh, serve on duty on the weekends. And that was back in the time when you had pagers. <laughs> You'd take this humongous bag with you that had your crisis plan, all of the contacts, you know, there was no Google file or, or um, electronic file. So all that stuff was paper. So you would lug that home with you when you were on duty. And when you were the duty officer, you handled nonstop, round the clock phone calls from reporters. And you were the person who handled that. And you had your contacts within the company that you dealt with. On December the 20th, 1995, American Airlines Flight 965 is preparing to depart Miami International Airport. Its destination is Cali, Colombia. Flight 965 is scheduled to leave at 4.40 p.m., but has already been delayed for 30 minutes at the gate to allow for connecting passengers. The 20-year-old Canadian TV series May Day pulled together a pretty decent examination and reenactment of Flight 965's final hours. I'll put the YouTube link in the episode description if you want to check that out. The flight was further delayed by heavy holiday traffic leaving MIA, and the NTSB determined that this left the pilots behind schedule 
and in a hurry to catch up. Finally, two hours late, flight 965 is cleared for takeoff. Fly the runway heading. Clear for takeoff. Merry Christmas. Clear for takeoff. Two seven right. American nine six five. You do a great job. Good night. Captain Nicholas Tafuri, aged fifty-seven, is in charge of flight nine six five. He's one of American Airlines' premier pilots, with more than thirteen thousand hours of flying experience, over two thousand of them in the seven five seven. At the controls is First Officer Donny R. Williams, aged thirty-nine. Although he's been flying for American for nine years, Flight 965 is his first trip to Cali. A few hours later, Flight 965 was beginning its final descent to Aragon International Airport in Cali. Coming from the north, planes on their final approach to Cali have to descend between two rugged mountain ranges with peaks more than two and a half miles above the valley floor. Keeping them on course, a series of radio beacons tracked by the airplane's flight management system. With a set of these waypoints programmed into this computer system, the commercial airliner can basically fly itself to within a few miles of Cali. Their progress is, of course, monitored and directed by air traffic control at Aragon. But Colombian air traffic controllers in 1995 were flying blind, so to speak. An important radar installation had been blown up several years prior by the insurgent group FARC, and so they had no way to track the exact location of incoming flights. Instead, air traffic control counted on pilots to self-report their location based on distance to the airport and those radio beacons, and then gave them directions based on the location that they self-reported. It was clearly less than ideal, but also the kind of thing that pilots trained for. And on the night of December 20th, 1995, Flight 965 had four steps left on its flight plan. Cross Waypoint Tolua, cross Waypoint Rozo, come around in a long turn and land from the south in Cali. The cockpit transcript shows that Captain Tafuri had no concerns when he radioed in his location. The DME is 6-3. Uh, descend and maintain one, 5,000 feet. Altimeter? 3002. Report to Lua. Okay, understood. Cleared direct to Cali, VOR, uh, report to Lua. It's a misunderstanding. Captain Tafuri thinks he's being told to fly direct to Cali and forget all about Tolua. But the controller needs him to report when he passes Tolua so that he knows where the plane is. Tafuri punches direct to Kali in his computer. Since the plane no longer has to pass over them, all the waypoints between his present position and Kali will now be erased, including Tolua, the one he's now approaching. A few moments later, air traffic control gets back on the radio. The winds have calmed in Kali, and so the pilots have the option of landing from the north on runway 19, rather than circling around and coming in from the south. Already way behind schedule, they jump at the opportunity to make up even five minutes, but they're gonna have to get their bearings and descend much more quickly so they don't overshoot the runway. Williams deploys the speed brakes. The brakes are flaps on the top of the wings. When they're raised, they reduce lift and increase the plane's rate of descent. Events begin to unravel very quickly in the cockpit. The pilots have to locate the new charts for the approach to 1-9 
enter the new route into the computer and still fly the plane. But as they're fumbling with the charts, air traffic control is still asking them to report when they cross the next waypoint. Having deleted all the waypoints out of the pre-programmed path, Captain Tefuri quickly tries to punch up waypoint Rozo and hits execute. But it's the wrong waypoint by hundreds of miles. The plane turns hard to the east and, unbeknownst to the pilots as they struggle to navigate in the dark, crosses over to the other side of one of those two and a half mile high mountain ridges. For another minute, the autopilot takes them further and further off course. The plane is moving at 215 miles per hour and descending at 1300 feet per minute. Unable to make heads or tails out of the waypoint beacons, Pilots decide to head straight for the airport, unaware that there's now a wall of mountains between them and Kali. The plane's ground proximity warning system is telling them they're about to crash. Realizing their mortal danger, the recovered black box shows that Captain Tafuri maxed out the throttle and pulled up as hard as he could. And the NTSB investigation found that he could have made it too, except for that final fatal mistake they forgot to disengage the speed brake. That fateful decision, the last in an unlikely perfect storm of errors and coincidences, cost the plane just enough altitude that it clipped its tail on the treetops of the mountain ridge and crashed. I'd been on the job for three weeks, as you said. In Dallas, it was a typical Wednesday night for American Airlines spokeswoman Jennifer Hudson. I was at home asleep because it was the middle of the night. The telephone rang and I was told that something had happened with a plane. We weren't sure what, what it was and that I needed to pack a bag. I assumed conversations had already been had that I was a Spanish speaker in the department. I needed to pack a bag, bring my passport and get to the office as soon as possible and headed into the office with a mix of both just sort of shock and sadness and wonder because I'd been in this department for such a short time and I had seen what happens on the reservation side and the frenzy and the quick coordination that happens on reservations, but I had not seen it in corporate communications. So I remember walking into the department and a lot of the, the other departments were dark, but the lights were on in our area and I walk in and there's already tons of movement and I head to the office of Al Becker, who had been with American and who I will just be forever grateful to. Al really calmed my spirit and told me exactly what I needed to do when we made the decision that I was the one who would head to Cali, Colombia. He brought me into his office and I can remember him sitting back and telling me, okay, Jen, this is what you're going to do. Then you're going to do this. I needed to set up the, the go room for us in Cali. That room would be populated with fax machines. <laughs> That's what we used back then, with fax machines to, you know, and a computer for me to constantly churn out and receive information from corporate office that I would then need to provide to our country manager or to the media there. He was a, a man who had been around the curve a few times and had some sense of what I was going to experience. 
Although I don't think anyone really understood what, was, what I could experience unless you'd actually been there and seen it. Unaware of Flight 965's fate and unsure what to expect as an on-site company spokeswoman, Jennifer Hudson was headed to Columbia. Her job? Try and provide answers to the families of 159 grieving passengers and crew and the traveling public worldwide about the circumstances that had brought down one of the world's safest, most advanced flying machines. It's a process that would ultimately take months and change forever the way that she approaches her work. Hearing black box audio is one of the most difficult things ever. It makes, you know, the hairs on your head and all over your body just stand on end. The rest of her tale and more are coming up in a minute here on Lead Balloon. This is Lead Balloon, and I'm Dusty Weiss. Three weeks into her job as a spokeswoman for American Airlines in 1995, Jennifer R. Hudson was paged out of bed in the middle of the night and told to report to the office ready for travel. American Flight 965 was missing, presumed lost in the mountains of Colombia. And as the resident Spanish speaker on the comms team, she was being sent to manage the company's on-site PR response, a job for which she hoped desperately to have some guidance from a senior team member. I do remember another colleague came in with a coat on, because this was December, it was cold in Dallas. He came in with his suitcase, and I remember feeling this rush of relief, like, oh, that guy's going to come with me. I didn't know who that guy was. I was like, okay, I'll have someone more senior with me, because I've only been here three weeks. But that was not the case. I ended up on an airplane with our GO team, the only person from corporate communications, the plane ride down to Colombia was was a little harrowing and nerve-wracking because we were on the same type of plane, 757. I remember there was some turbulence on the plane and we were all trying to get some sleep before we headed down. And the plane was populated with all of the folks from American Airlines head office who needed to be there. Our operations person, insurance, like all of the whole GO team was, was headed down. And I remember that there, the, the plane you know, sort of shook a little bit and it was a bit of turbulence and we all sort of sat up and people were running their fingers through their hair and just a little sort of like what, what's going on this was that same night of the crash this was still in the darkness yeah oh my goodness this is still in the darkness so probably very very early in the morning did you get any sleep on that flight i don't think so because i remember being very exhausted in the hotel afterwards what if anything was going through your head on that flight you know i I sat next to our insurance person who was going down and we had nice conversation for a while and I felt comforted, but I was still sort of racked with this sense of like wondering what the heck am I doing, you know? Three weeks on the job, in your 20s, young, not realizing. I will tell you this as a juxtaposition. Years later, working for British Airways, Colombia was part of my market. I was VP, as you said, of Latin America and the Caribbean. When I traveled to Colombia, we remained in the airport, and if we went outside the airport, we were in armored cars. Colombia is completely different today, right? But at the time, that was the reality of Colombia. You know, I knew there were narcotraficantes in Colombia, but I didn't realize that the plane had gone down in an area that was populated by narcotraficantes. Ignorance was power. <laughs> 
at that time, if I had sort of known all of what I was going into, I might have been a lot more freaked out. But the fact that there was an incident with the plane was harrowing in and of itself, but I didn't have a full grasp of all of the political and social implications of what, what was happening at the time. In Cali, family members of the passengers and crew waited in the airport terminal. Many of them had been waiting since the plane's scheduled arrival the evening prior, desperate for answers. Residents of Buga, a small mountain town at the base of El Diluvio, reported hearing a massive explosion in the late night dark. As rescue crews began ascending the peak at 3 a.m., news crews packed the already crowded airport terminal in Cali, joining the throng of people hungry for more information. When I arrived at the airport, I remember walking through wide open glass doors and seeing the head of the country manager for Colombia surrounded by layer after layer after layer of reporters who were pounding him with questions. He had his head bent down. He was very humble. Obviously, it was a horrible situation. We're all in shock. He's trying to answer the questions calmly. And I realized that it was my job to go and rescue him. (laughs) To put yourself between him and those reporters. Exactly. And I, again... I owe this to Al because Al told me what I needed to do when I got there. You know, I'm sure that I was expecting a throng. I just don't know that I was expecting that much of a throng around this one individual. It was really sort of sad. You know, it's like this one man, he's surrounded by layers. It was like layers of an onion of people. It was massive. And so somehow I forced my way through the crowd, got to the country manager, And I might have said something like, we'll have a statement for you, whatever. And I pulled him out of that crowd and we got to a room in the airport for privacy. And from that point, we ended up at a hotel near the site of the crash. And that's where I began to set up my operations room and everything that I would need with the support of some other folks at American. And so with the country manager's support. I was the go-between between corporate office and what was happening on the ground. You know, I, I spoke with my uh, boss at the time later, and he said that you were our only eyes and ears there. And he also said something that I thought was really wonderful. He said, you know, we didn't realize until you got there and jumped into action how good you actually were. <laughs> I was like, well, that's very nice. Thank you. We didn't realize how good you actually were until you got there and and managed it. But you were our eyes and ears. We had no one else. He was spending his time in operations control. There was no one on the ground. There's something to be said about that, though, because in a situation like that, when you're untested as you were, there's really no way to know until you have your feet on the ground. And, And from my experience, having been in high-intensity situations, although never quite that intense, sometimes you just have to keep your feet under you and just keep moving from one job to the next to the next. You just look at it like a to-do list. You almost, you don't look at it like it's reality until you've established some kind of order on it. You know, you just put your head down and do the work. I had work to do. I had to get this room set up. Media around the world wanted answers 
that never stops. And I was used to that from the reservations department again, like the phone calls don't stop. You've got to constantly coordinate with other folks. I just put my head down and did the work. Where that comes from, I mean, I guess that comes from your the work ethic that your parents instilled in you. I don't know. I had already, you know, been managing a team of over 100 people in the reservations department. I was used to having lots of information coming at me. It's interesting. It could have also been just youthful ignorance. You know, there's always a moment after a crisis where there is a debrief, you know, this kind of moment of reckoning where you have to kind of discuss and talk about. And I know that after that, there was some trauma that I experienced. But when you're in it, you're just dealing with it. And whatever I was experiencing was nothing compared to those parents who were waiting for their kids to come home for the holidays, for those families who were waiting for their loved ones. We actually set up places for the families in the hotel where I was staying. So I was seeing families while I was doing my work and coordinating with the country manager. And so seeing those families in their anguish, just, you know, you don't think about self, right? I, I just did what I needed to do. And I knew that I needed to be the person who was gathering information as we got it, helping corporate fashion statements that reflected what we knew, because you can't tell what you don't know. And doing that in a way that protects everyone. People from outside the industry, I think, forget that part of our job in public relations is to help bring information and ultimately bring closure to families that are having the worst day of their lives. And I know that it's easy sometimes to be seen as the bad guy when you're the face for a disaster for something like that. But I think that it's really admirable that you kind of kept yourself going by focusing on serving other people who were in need. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know this at the time because I hadn't gotten through my master's degree program in public relations. But the role of the PR person is really about serving that company and all of its various publics, right? There's a two-way responsibility that we have as public relations professionals to manage the interests ethically of all of the related parties. Jennifer Hudson didn't know it at the time, but that mission of service was being tested back in American Airlines corporate headquarters while she was afield in Columbia. We had made an initial statement and we knew that we needed to communicate more. I'm on a plane heading to Colombia, and I learned later that my colleagues are doing a back and forth with management where they're trying to convince them of the need to communicate more. Uh, not that we shouldn't say anything at all, right? Management knew we needed to communicate, but as much as we were advising, they didn't want to do. And understandably so, because we didn't know anything. So why communicate when we don't know? And as you know, when you don't communicate, the void gets filled with something. So we were trying to convince them that we needed to fill that void. I think this is probably something that plays out more often than most people realize behind the scenes in situations like this, not just at aviation companies, but any big corporate entity that faces a crisis. Very often, management's initial impulse is to just lock down, no information in, no information out. And one of the biggest hurdles that I think we face as public relations and crisis communicators is convincing them that that is not a good course of action. It's not good for the company and it's not good for the public. How do you, as a professional in this space, go about making that case? It is 
so important for public relations professionals to be bold in their counsel with senior leaders. Because I mentor and train communications professionals to teach them how to do communications planning, I notice this lack of confidence, even when they know that what they're saying is the right thing to do. There's a lack of confidence and, and boldness that we need to overcome because there is no one more suited, more uniquely capable of approaching any number of different issues that companies face than PR people. And our role goes far beyond media relations. We need to constantly have our finger on the pulse of what's happening throughout the organization, in the marketplace, social, political, economic issues that can impact the brand. And we need to be taking that knowledge and information to senior leaders and providing them counsel and not being not shying away from that. So when you left the U.S., you guys didn't know yet that the plane had crashed. You assumed that there was probably something terrible that had happened, but you really didn't know. And and details began to come out very quickly then that morning as the Colombian military found the remains of the plane on the side of the mountain. What had happened? How did that change what your job was and, and how you went about doing it once you actually knew that the plane had gone down? Well, emotionally, I was, you know, severely impacted by it, obviously. But my role in Corpcom didn't necessarily change. My job was to was to help route information from what we knew on the ground through to corporate, fashion the statements, deliver that to media. I'm sure I was translating into Spanish, delivering that as well. And that didn't change no matter what. I mean, my memory of, of that time is in a closed room that I had in the, in the hotel with fax machines, computers, and the occasional food item to eat. But I was heads down in there for the days that I was in Colombia. <laughs> that's, that's most, yeah. you know, when I stepped outside of that space, is when I saw the anguish in the families or when I was headed up to my room. It's just, it was, it was, it was awful. It was awful. While Jennifer coordinated American Airlines messaging, news began to trickle in from the mountainside of El Diluvio as well. Search crews had found the wreckage of the plane as well as five survivors who were carried down the mountain on makeshift stretchers or airlifted to the hospital. Among them, was Gonzalo Dusan. When I get up of the fuselage of the plane, I remember my son. He say, Father, Father, help me. A father who had been traveling with his wife and two children. His wife didn't survive the crash. His son survived the descent, but succumbed to his injuries in the hospital. Only Gonzalo, his daughter, and two unrelated young adults made it, along with a dog that had been stowed in a carrier in the cargo hold. Jennifer tells me that the dog came back to the U.S. and became the family pet of one member of the American Airlines Critical Incident Team. In Jennifer's hotel room slash command center, she coordinated updates about these and other developments as search crews combed the mountainside, eventually locating the 757's black box voice and data recorders. The work was grueling, the situation heartbreaking. And with Christmas just a couple days away, Jennifer was running on fumes. I got a phone call that I was going to be going home and that we were they were sending 
our Chicago representative to Colombia, who also, I don't think, spoke Spanish. But by then, I think we had enough of a handle on things. I remember that she walked through the door, and I just remember feeling this big relief that she was there. Moff walked through the door, that's what we called her, we called her Moff, and Moff walked through the door, just like, it was like sunshine coming through the door. And I, I think that we hugged, and I was very happy to have her there. In the days that followed the crash, the industry was shocked. Dave Simmon is a retired pilot who knew the Kali approach well, and told the Canadian TV series Mayday that the crash was baffling for investigators. They were shocked because they didn't know how could a sophisticated airplane like the 757, flown by a well-respected international carrier like American Airlines with well-trained crews, get so far off course. Nobody could figure out how did it happen. Only by combing through the flight data and cockpit recordings did investigators finally piece together the unlikely series of small errors that culminated in the disaster. The transcript of those cockpit recordings was made public, but the recordings themselves never were, though Jennifer and her colleagues heard them as they prepared the company's response to the investigation's findings. There is nothing more traumatic or harrowing than listening to the black box audio of a plane that's gone down. I was in Al Becker's office and all of us were sort of huddled around and we were on one of those conference phones and we were listening to the audio. It gives me chills to even think about it now, but I can still hear the whoop, whoop, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. I mean, I remember, that's one thing I remember so clearly. And then I remember silence. Yeah, hear, hearing black box audio is one of the most difficult things ever, um, especially if it ends in in the kind of crash that like we had in Colombia. David Ivey was an NTSB investigator who spoke on the Canadian TV series Mayday. This accident is known as a CFIT accident, which means control flight into terrain. By that I mean the airplane was controlled by the crew and it was a perfectly normal functioning airplane and the crew flew the airplane into the mountain. It's one of the leading causes of accidents of, over the last hundred years. Two good pilots were led astray by a problem that they were trying to figure out and at the time they failed to do the basic thing, fly the airplane. A court eventually ruled that the pilots of Flight 965 had shown willful misconduct during the approach to Cali Airport. Survivor Mercedes Ramirez, who lost both her parents, continues to deal with the crash. Hopefully it's a wake-up call to pilots that no matter how many times you've flown to a city, you just have to be alert and aware because every little move that you make, you have the lives of people in your hands. Often lost in the news coverage and press releases about a disaster like this is the mark that it leaves not just on survivors, but first responders, investigators, and even the company spokespeople who live the trauma day in and day out in the course of their duties. Jennifer Hudson says there's no way to immerse yourself in someone else's grief like that and emerge unchanged. After having been in Colombia and then 
knowing what those families had gone through. Everything from arriving in the airport with a throng of reporters to finally hearing what those people on the plane experienced, what the pilots were listening to in their confusion or really just unknowing about what was going on. It was... It was tough, Dusty. It was... <laughs> it was... um. It was pretty traumatic. It, it makes, you know, the hair is on your head and all over your body just stand on end. You were sent down into this situation having been on the job for only three weeks. And so I know in the fields of public relations and, and crisis communications, there's, there's sort of the, oh, that person, they're the rookie mentality. A little bit of that that goes around, but... When you went down and, and went through this and then came back and saw your colleagues again, did they treat you differently for your having been through this? I know that there was a great deal of empathy. <laughs> I, I think I felt like I'd always been treated with respect, but I was definitely respected. I think your story is especially interesting for comms professionals because a lot of people will work for 30 or 40 years in this career and never experience a situation that's anywhere close to as intense as what you did with the stakes that high. And for me, it's always been kind of an important touchstone as my career has advanced to look back at the experiences you've been through. If you feel nervous before a pitch, you have a client who's upset where you can at least sort of take a deep breath and remind yourself, well, at least no one's lives are on the line here. This is this is just a pitch. This is just an angry client. Are there times when you look at a situation that you have now and say, well, at least this isn't Columbia? I don't really think of it in those terms, you know. What oh, I, you should try. It helps a lot. Uh, <laughs> well, what I do do, I mean, I don't think, you know, at least this isn't Columbia. I mean, it was almost 30 years ago now. What I've taken from it is the experience of being in that kind of traumatic situation, so much so that I don't get easily rattled. And I have to exercise a greater degree of empathy with clients who think they're in a crisis. <laughs> you think this is a crisis. This ain't nothing. Um, <laughs> who think they're in a crisis and meet them where they are so that I can support them throughout. Issues management is different from a crisis. And in many cases, what I'm dealing with with clients is issues management. My issues can rise to the level of a crisis if left untended and if you're not communicating through them and filling the void. But I don't know that I have experienced a true crisis of that magnitude. And even hearing you position it that way that, you know, you can work 30 or 40 years and not experience something like that. I'd never even really thought about that. It's just my experience. And, but yeah, I guess it is sort of unusual. Yeah. Isn't it? You're one of the lucky ones, quote unquote. And I, and, and I think I think of it that way, because as I said, it, it, while I was on the ground there, it wasn't the first crash I had experienced. It allows me to have this level of, of calm and focus in the situation that that I think is very beneficial. Now, I might like have a nervous breakdown and like freak out afterwards. But when I'm in the moment, <laughs> when I'm in the moment, I am I'm dealing with the issue. 
Jennifer stayed in the aviation sector for seven more years after the crash of Flight 965. In 2004, she branched out as an independent strategic communications consultant in South Florida, which today has coalesced as her firm Think Beyond Public Relations. Among her areas of expertise, training and mentoring communications professionals so they can lead clients through messaging workshops that operationalize and align good PR practices with sound business strategy. You can tune in for one of her regular informational seminars or even one of her clubhouse sessions. I really help organizations ensure that they are prepared for any type of situation like that by going through a communications planning process that allows them to think about who their target audiences really should be, what the messaging is that they need, and which channels are the best channels for them to engage to do that. And StratChat is really sort of my gift to communications professionals. I hosted a four-week series in January where I went through the four phases of communications planning each week with an expert. So the first week we talked about research and the second week we talked about planning. The third week we talked about implementation and the fourth week we talked about evaluation. And I've moved that conversation to Clubhouse. I'm such a Clubhouse fan. I'm like total like Clubhouse fangirl. Um, so I moved the conversation to Clubhouse and I hosted weekly on Thursdays at three o'clock. And I'm, you know, I'm gonna do hot seats where I put people in the hot seats and ask them about their challenges as communications professionals dealing with strategy, trying to convince clients of the need for a strategic approach. Yesterday I did a session where I just kind of walked through the communications planning process and took some questions from folks. I'll have guests on. So yeah, so that's what I'm doing with StratChat. Well, that sounds like something I'd like to tune into. How do I find you? You can follow Strategic Communicators. It's a club on Clubhouse. You have to be on Clubhouse, obviously, to access it. Clubhouse is still in beta, so you need an invitation currently to be a part of it, but millions and millions of people are on the app every day. So you have to be on Clubhouse. You look for the Strategic Communicators Club and ask to receive notifications. And when the club is on, you'll learn about, um, or you can follow me on Instagram as well, Think Beyond PR. I always post when I'm going live on StratChat Weekly. It's every Thursday at three o'clock p.m. I'll also add that you are a great follow on LinkedIn, which is where I met you and follow you. Jennifer R. Hudson right. is how folks find you there. Jennifer R. Hudson, you're the former vice president of communications for British Airways former PR manager at the Sabre Group, and of course, a former corporate communications rep for American Airlines. This is the kind of story that a lot of people don't have to tell. And it's a kind of story that is deeply personal, and it's the kind of story that can help make other professional communicators better. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart for having the fortitude to share it here. It has been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you and uh, glean some of these insights from you. So thank you for joining us on Light Balloon. Thank you, Dusty. Thank you. That is going to do it for this episode of Light Balloon. Please make sure you're subscribed in your favorite app or maybe tell a friend if you've heard something you like on the show. Light Balloon is produced by PodCamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production solutions for businesses. Check out our website, podcampmedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Until the next time, folks. Thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.